Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. My name is Coleman Hughes. I'm a writer and host of the Conversations with Coleman podcast. In today's world, we can't escape discussions about race. It's an obsession that's taken center stage in our culture. But I can't help but wonder, why? Why is our society so fixated on this topic? In my new book, The End of Race Politics, I argue for a return to the ideals that inspired the American civil rights movement. I reveal how our departure from the colorblind ideal has led to a new era marked by fear, paranoia, and resentment. By fixating on race, we lose sight of what it means to be truly anti-racist. I believe that a colorblind society is possible, and in the end of race politics, I provide the intellectual tools to make it happen. Join me on this journey to rethink the conversation. The end of race politics is available for presale now. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Nick Gillespie. Nick is a prominent libertarian journalist and commentator, best known for his work at Reason Magazine, where he's been for about 30 years, I believe. In this episode, we discuss Nick's experience getting engaged at the recent Burning Man. We talk about psychedelic drugs, the promise they hold, as well as the dangers they contain. We talk about the evolution of the libertarian movement in America. We talk about how we should message about drugs to kids. We talk about the differences between MDMA, psilocybin, and LSD. We talk about why trust in government has declined, and much more. So without further ado, Nick Gillespie. Okay, Nick Gillespie, thank you so much for coming on my show. Uh, It's a real pleasure to be here. And you'll probably see lots of other podcasts that use the exact same backdrop. But aside from those tiny, inconvenient facts, it's totally me. So first off, congratulations um, on getting engaged at Burning Man. If people aren't aware of this, there's a, there's a beautiful video on Twitter. Uh, your your fiance, Sarah, who I've met, is wonderful. And you got engaged at the what may go down as one of the most, if not the most famous Burning Mans, I guess you would say. Burning Men? Yeah. Burning Mans. Burning's Men. Burning's I don't know. Men. Yeah, it's like yeah, Attorney General. Yes, I, you know, it's kind of amazing <laughs> that Burning Man hasn't been degendered yet, right? I mean, it's been around since the late 80s. Oh, yeah. And it's it not, really it's not burning um, yeah. they, them. And it's also, you know, it is still all about fire, which is really interesting. So uh, this which year- is sort of like anti-environmental in some way? It's not. I, I mean, it's an interesting question because this year there were also people protesting, environmentalists protesting the road in, and it takes place in the middle of nowhere in the desert on, uh, on federal uh, Bureau of Land Management land. And some environmentalists were protesting the fact that like billionaires use this as a playground and that it's not carbon neutral. And, you know, billionaires, of course, aren't driving in, they're flying in and things like that. But it is without 
becoming a, a cliched evangelist for it. It's a fascinating event, you know, that has now been around. I think this was its 37th year. But what's really interesting about it is that everybody who thinks they have it pegged, that it's like, oh, well, you know, this is a bunch of like woke socialists or tech bros or drug addicts or this or that. It doesn't, it can't be contained by that. And one of the most interesting things for me, you know, and I'm a professional libertarian in everything I do, I try to extrude through some kind of libertarian like Plato die, you know, into something. But it's really a celebration of kind of human freedom and surplus wealth because, you know, everything gets done once and then it disappears. Um, but like the fire element is really a big part of it. And, you know, pe- you know, everybody there is environmentally conscious. Like the, the And one of the most amazing things about it is, you know, you, tr- you go in, you bring everything you need because this is a part of the desert where there are literally not even bugs for the most part. There's no vegetation. There's nothing. It's completely dead as an environment. And you take everything out. Um, so everybody there is very environmental in the way that they think about stuff, but they also have fun and they're not pretending this is, you know, that it's it's a carbon neutral activity to burn a bunch of stuff in the middle of the desert. So it's very interesting that way. You make a good point that it brings together lots of different kinds of people in an unpredictable way and can't be caricatured. Something about that, I think something about psychedelics may do that. Yeah. So I watched your uh, 30 minute documentary, great documentary produced by Reason, right? Right. Yeah, by Reason. About psychedelics, the psychedelic, uh, what's it called? We call it uh, Welcome to the Psychedelic Renaissance. Psychedelic Renaissance. You know, the starting point we went to in June, there's a group called MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which has been around since like the mid to late 80s. And they've been working to, among other things, get FDA approval of MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD and a couple of other indications, which is getting close. I mean, they've been saying this for a number of years, but it's like, you know, next year it's going to be approved, et cetera. But they had a big conference in Denver called the Psychedelic Sciences Conference, and it brings together doctors, therapists, researchers, activists, artists, and, you know, everybody, thrill seekers and whatnot. And there were 13,000 people this year everywhere around us, psychedelics. You know, they've been decriminalized or legalized in places like Colorado and Oregon. Uh, The FDA is, the MAPS is in uh, stage three trials, which is the one before you get approved by the FDA for their system of using MDMA to help people. Am I right? Am I remembering right that they were given breakthrough drug status? That was actually uh, psilocybin. Uh, And that's... It's a different company of a more traditional pharmaceutical company named Compass, which is also in stage three trials using psilocybin or, you know, mushrooms for similar things, I think, for anxiety and depression. And so like and then culturally, you know, you can just see all around us things are popping up where psychedelics are getting a second and longer look. And um, yes, similarly to Burning Man, the psychedelic space is one where, you know, you kind of assume it's like it's a bunch of, you know, burnt out old 60s cases who are, you know, huffing the fumes of Timothy Leary's corpse or something and young people who just want to get high or trip. But it's much, so much more robust than that. And at this conference, uh, you know, the two first, the first two big outside speakers were Jared Polis, the liberal Democratic governor of Colorado, who's behind, who's backed a lot of this stuff, you know, and as governor of a state that was the, is generally considered the most successful at legalizing recreational cannabis.
cannabis. And, but then it was Rick Perry, you know, the former governor of Texas, who's a hardcore Republican who was in Trump's cabinet. And he's all about MDMA assisted therapy and other psychedelic therapy for veterans and uh, victims of sexual trauma. And that kind of, you know, it's exciting to see uh, people who normally aren't in the same room unless that, you know, it's Thunderdome actually kind of talking and conversing. So there was an article in, I guess it was, uh, was it New York Magazine? I think it was New York Magazine or the New Yorker rather uh, about the this kind of dinner series that both you and I ha- have gone to in the past, yeah. uh, hosted by Pamela Paresky. It was called The Club for the Canceled. Right. And there was a line that I actually laughed out loud. It goes, quote, on average, the group probably leans right, at least when compared to the rest of the city. But a few socialists go along with a contingent of libertarians such as Nick Gillespie, who come ready for debate, quote, and you bring drugs, Nick added. Yes. <laughs> well, that is our role. Libertarians are, you know, we're not the most popular or the most populous subculture, but we know what people want. Yeah, I mean, uh, I laughed out loud when I read that because having been to those dinners, I know they're they're not dinners that other people are generally bringing drugs to. Like you were just kind of telling on yourself a little bit. Yeah, and uh, to be honest and to be forthright, I don't think I've ever done drugs at any of those things. I don't drink anymore, so it's I don't know. I'm 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 a bad faith libertarian. A lot. Did you quit drinking recently? I quit drinking in 2019. Why? Uh, Because I was drinking too much and it was becoming the AA parlance. And I don't attend AA, but I I found AA useful in various things. But my life had become unmanageable, primarily not because of drinking, but the drinking was exacerbating everything. So I do other kinds of drugs, but I don't drink anymore. Do psychedelics, uh, did psychedelics help the transition from drinking to not drinking? Uh, they do prime, you know, for a lot of people. And I mean, you know, I've, I've even heard people that just kind of naturally lose interest in drinking without having had a classical problem as a result of doing psychedelics. That's very common. And, uh, you know, LSD was uh, synthesized, I guess, in the late 30s. And then it kind of started getting used towards the late 40s. Um, In the 50s and early 60s, before it was prohibited or and, you know, really started coming under a lot of negative scrutiny from the government, especially one of its primary applications was to help cure alcoholism or treat alcoholism. And uh, the guy who coined the term psychedelic was a British born doctor and researcher named Humphrey Osmond, who ended up in Saskatchewan for much of his life. And um, he had these fantastic results treating problem drinking. He gave LSD or, or he treated Bill W., the, one of the founders of AA, uh, who was an evangelist for psychedelics and LSD for a while before the AA people told him to cool it. But yeah, I didn't, in my case, I, I had come, uh, you know, I'm half Irish and half Italian. So like I'm already, you know, two and a half steps behind everybody just coming out of the womb. And on the Irish side in particular, very stereotypically, I'm, I only know my family line back through my father's father or my grandfather. He was an alcoholic or a problem drinker. My father was, I was, um, you know, so it was in the cards to stop. And I would say for me, psychedelics didn't help me stop, uh, but it's they they probably helped me not feel a need to drink. What's your favorite psychedelic drug and why? Uh, It's LSD. And it's kind of like there's within the psychedelic community, uh, there's a lot of endlessly proliferating number of subgroups. And because humans are kind of fractal, so like every part of us and every subculture we do contains all the problems and all the promises of everything else. So, you know, whenever you get into a subgroup, you know, whether it's musical or, you know, literary or whatever, like people start 
creating dumb distinctions. But within the psychedelic world, there's a lot of like natural versus lab and this and that and ritual versus, you know, kind of just doing stuff. I like LSD. LSD. Oh, so so natural versus lab. That would just yeah, be on the LSD, lab side I mean, it's a, Yeah, it's, no, it's, no, it's, no, you know, it's no based on a, a fungus um, that's been around for a long time. Ergot, but it was right. synthesized. Yeah, and it was, but it was synthesized in a lab in Switzerland yeah, by a Hoffman. guy yeah, who is... <laughs> It's the absolute, he's such the difference of like a dirty, smelly hippie. It's comical, really. Um, and yeah, but I, in any case, I like LSD because it's really, you know, it's powerful, it's potent. It's, I've had just a series of, you know, both mundane and fascinating experiences on it. So I read Albert Hoffman's wonderful biography. I'm forgetting the name of it now. My, uh, my Problem LSD, Child. My Problem Child. My Problem Child, yeah. yeah. Beautiful, beautifully written documentary. Uh, about Hoffman, who accidentally discovered LSD as a Swiss chemist. Right. Well, he accidentally discovered himself. the hallucinogenic properties of it, right? Because yeah, he yes. did it on That's purpose right. and they were looking for, you know, he was doing various iterations of it. And then he didn't realize he had ingested it. And I remember in that book, he speaks of, I, I believe, two different occasions where he met Timothy Leary and had kind of really apparently spirited arguments with him about the proper path for, for LSD to be disseminated to the public. Now, Timothy Leary basically thought it should be dropped in the water supply. And Albert Hoffman vigorously disagreed with this strategy. He thought that there would be a huge backlash and that what it should it should go through the proper institutional channels, government, uh, the me medical regulatory bodies and so forth. I think with hindsight, Albert Hoffman was completely right. And at least on one telling, Timothy Leary's radical strategy led to backlash, which kept it illegal for many, many decades. Would you would you agree with that analysis or do you think it would have been banned either way? Yeah, I think it would have been banned either way. And I think uh, having said that, though, Leary is, you know, is he is a problem child. And in many ways, he was a man child. I'm a, a big admirer of Timothy Leary for his public effect. I mean, by um, I reviewed, I uh, got about 10 or 15 years ago, Robert Greenfield, a journalist, wrote a biography of him. I reviewed it for The Washington Post. And it's, you know, Leary on a personal level is fairly despicable as a person, but we don't necessarily, that's not the measure of, you know, somebody's effect on the culture, but the, within the psychedelic world and, you know, there's people like Hoffman who also, by the way, it's interesting that he changes, like everybody does this, like over the course of his life, he kind of changes his minds or, you know, you rewrite and revise your past without necessarily like leaving the track changes visible. So his attitude changes over time a little bit. And towards the end of his life, he became a little bit looser about things. But you don't expect a Swiss chemist who is working for Sandoz, which is kind of now Novartis, like to be like, oh, yeah, you know what, like, let's let it all hang out and everybody should just be doing acid all the time. But, you know, people like Aldous Huxley, who was one of the main figures who really kind of mainstream psychedelics in the 50s with the book The Doors of Perception. He was given mescaline for the first time by this Humphrey Osmond character who treated alcoholics and coined the term psychedelic. But there, that, there's, those guys were like, you know what, we need to administer this sparingly and under certain controlled circumstances, either with a doctor or a priest. Leary comes along, and at first he was, you know, a semi-responsible 
respectable psychological researcher and he was doing, you know, serious trials and stuff like that. And then at a certain point, something snaps and he's like, no, I want to be the high priest. One of his, his memoirs is called High Priest. And he, but he wants everybody or a lot more people to be doing psychedelics, but still kind of within the terms he would lay out. So he was kind of, you know, it's interesting because he's not a control freak in the way that maybe Aldous Huxley or the early uh, Hoffman is, but he's also not a total let it all hang out. And that's actually Ken Kesey, uh, who had been a merry prankster, or he created the merry pranksters on the West Coast. He's the author of One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest and uh, another book called Sometimes a Great Notion. He had gone to Stanford. He had worked in a um, hospital, a mental hospital, where people were being treated with LSD and he started taking it. He, far more than Leary, was like, yeah, let's literally put it in the water. And he would dose people at uh, what were called the electric Kool-Aid acid tests in California where the Grateful Dead played. And he became, you know, he he had to go on the lam. He ran away to Mexico for a while because he was uh, being prosecuted. He was much more radical still than Leary. So there's this continuum, which, and that tension continues. That's a big part of the psychedelic Renaissance doc, is that almost everybody that we talk to, from Rick Doblin to people like Julie Holland, a psychiatrist and researcher, and, uh, you know, certainly people like Rick Perry, they're all like, we need to not repeat the problems that Timothy Leary kind of manifested or conjured. I agree with some of that. There's no question that Leary was a provocateur. There's a there's a strong argument that you needed to. Like, we don't, and I say this, I mean, I realize you're like half my age. I just turned 60. And, you know, we cannot appreciate how square and like repressed American culture was. And like, I don't, you're not going to change that by being like, you you know what, we need to wear tighter ties and do more lab testing. Like the 50s and 60s, and much, there's much more of a continuity there. Like in post-war America, this is a big part of my larger kind of project, is that in post-war America, for the first time, a lot of Americans got rich or, or they got richer than they used to be across every category. And they started to feel more empowered and say, you know what, like, fuck it, I am not going to live by the rules in a system where I don't really have a lot of choice. And, you know, and this takes on different forms for like, you know, the children of, of European immigrants, it took on one form for blacks, it took on another for gays, it took on another for women. But there's this profusion of I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm going to live more by my own rules after World War II, after the Depression, after, you know, the deprivations of war and a, a growing, swelling economy. And I think we, when Leary seems insane now, but he was necessary, I think, in a profound way to kind of crack the old America in the same way that when we look back, I think, at early feminists and a lot of race people discussing racial issues, like, you know, on a certain level, it seems insane now or like so over the top, but the world they were confronting was Maybe like the Malcolm X of... Uh and Malcolm X of psychedelics and yeah. Hoffman was more like a MLK. Uh, Martin Luther <laughs> King. Yeah, very good. But yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. Um, but consistently, I much prefer MLK to Malcolm X and, yeah. and Hoffman to Leary. But you also, to, you like Bayard Rustin. Yeah, I love right? Bayard and Rustin. Like, yeah, uh, and so when you look at somebody like him, he's kind of a mix of both because he wasn't putting up. I don't want to diminish at all like the, the idea that Martin Luther King was kind of like, you know, a shuffling, go along, get along type of guy is insane, um, you know, and and he was triangulating off of the, the Black Power movement and Malcolm X and things like that. But somebody like Rustin is, you know, truly a radical. And like, you know, some of his most radical work 
you know, was just in rejecting the draft and being a conscientious objector, as well as being openly gay without apology and without even really comment. So I don't know. It's more complicated. But these I think it makes sense to think about characters like Leary and Ken Kesey. And again, there's a lot of issues there, but like they were confronting a different America than the one we live in. And we live in a much better, freer, looser America, obviously with many problems, because these guys were willing to just really say, fuck it. Like I'm going over the edge. So the only three psychedelics I think I've done are um, psilocybin, LSD and MDMA. And which did you like best? By far MDMA. Yeah. So, I mean, MDMA, I've done the most of those three followed by psilocybin followed by LSD, which I believe I've only done twice. And when, when people that haven't done any of them ask me, should I do them? Or would you recommend them? The only one I feel I can recommend without caveat and really at all is MDMA. And the reason for that is because among the people I've seen do MDMA and I've heard of do MDMA, the number of bad stories of like truly harrowing experiences is like very, very, very low single digit percentage, possibly below 1%, right. like really kind of a rounding error on the experience. And it's usually appears to be because it wasn't pure MDMA. Right. And by the way, you know, the, I, I hate to sound like public service announcement, but one of the, you know, I, I Reason Magazine is, you know, very libertarian. We were established in 1968 in our first issue, which was like, you know, four pages of mimeographed zine, essentially. You know, there were calls to end the war on drugs. One of the reasons to do that beyond everything else is just so that people aren't taking poison in the name of taking something else. And like a roundabout way of saying, like, you know, everybody should test their drugs, um, regardless of who they get it from, because until things are fully legal and the manufacturers and distributors are fully legally liable for the integrity of their product, you never know. So MDMA, and I've done MDMA not in the the typical context of going to a rave and I mean, I've done a small amount of that, but by and large, when I've done it, I've done it with a small group of friends and just talked about our lives, kind of replicating without knowing sort of what you would be doing in an MDMA therapy session, like often talking about your past, processing your past in a way that for most people is probably only available to you in the context of a drug like MDMA. And I've noticed serious and lasting benefits from having done that. Now, personally, when it comes to psilocybin and LSD, I've had very fun experiences and horribly, horribly bad trips on both. I know of enough bad trips and enough horror stories with people that I don't feel I can actually recommend that you just do it because I don't want to be responsible for someone that came back with a terrible experience. And so that that's kind of, I mean, that that's kind of my approach to recommending and, and not recommending this. Furthermore, it's, it wasn't, it wasn't, hasn't been clear to me from, from LSD and, and mushrooms that I've seen a longer run benefit. So I guess one question is how, how do you recommend people who have not at all tried these substances but are interested? What advice do you have to them about the differences between them, how to do them, and the caveats that you give? Those are great questions. And, you know, I would start by saying, like, I really don't recommend anybody do anything. And I'm not, you know, that's not a cop out. It's I'm, I'm interested in your MDMA experiences because, you know, that all makes a lot of sense to me. And, um, you know, within the broad, I mean, this is true of all drugs, uh, really of almost all experiences. But, you know, people talk endlessly about set and setting. And it's kind of part of the experience is what 
the, the properties of the drugs, but it's really much more so what's the environment you're doing them in and what are you expecting to get out of them and your kind of mindset going in. And, you know, I suspect you could do, if you replicated the kind of situation where you're hanging out with a couple of friends and you do mushrooms or LSD like you do with MDMA, you might have a similar type of experience um, or more similar to that. But sometimes you, sometimes you never know. And what I, with all of these substances, I would recommend recommend, you know, I'm a big reader. So it's like my first step is reading about something and then talking to people and things like that. And regarding MDMA, there's a fantastic new book out called I Feel Love, which is a kind of cultural history of MDMA. And it's a wonderful way of like learning about the history of the, the drug. A couple of years ago, a book came out called Listening to Ecstasy, which is by a Gestalt therapist who also uses ecstasy, not or MDMA, MDMA. Uh, ecstasy is, you know, another name for it, Molly, things like that. And he, um, you know, he talks about the mechanics of like, okay, this is how you might use it. These are the proper dosing. Those two books are phenomenal, you know, kind of introductions to what you can get out of MDMA. Uh, there are similar books like that, you know, in videos and things like that online for the other drugs. And, you know, the one thing I would say is like MDMA, I mean, psychedelics in general kind of tend to engender a recognition and, you know, this is, I was raised Catholic. I'm not, you know, Catholic anymore, but of course, you know, that's, it's in me, right? You know, it's like a retrovirus or something. So, uh, but, and I'm not overly spiritual, but part of the allure of psychedelics is a recognition uh, that there is something unifying all of us and that we all belong to the, you know, kind of some similar entity. There's a oneness and that we are you know, manifestations of individual manifestations of that. And that's a profound feeling. And that is worth exploring, I think, whether you do it with drugs or philosophy or, you know, God for, you know, God help us politics and things like that. But there's a lot of, there's, you know, there's shelfuls of books that are really good and they keep coming out, you know, with more and more regularity. Uh, and I'm sorry, just uh, as an add on, you know, part of growth, and this is true whether it's, you know, chemically um, underwritten or not, is finding those harrowing moments. And I'm not saying everybody should go and have a bad trip, whatever that means. And certainly, you know, you really have to be careful. People who have a history of like bipolar or schizophrenia yeah, and things like that, like these are powerful substances. I don't think they're as powerful as either the detractors or the proponents say. They're tools, you know, they're, you know, like super duper aspirin really. And part of the rhetoric of the war on drugs is that on the one hand, you have insane prohibitionists who say, you know, if you take one puff of marijuana, you're going to start doing heroin. Like that drugs are enslavers of human desire and autonomy. And, you know, they make all of these, you know, and that like if you're on LSD, you won't know where you are and you'll tr think you can fly by jumping off a building. And my fiance, Sarah Siskind, who is also a psychedelic comedian, you know, has a great line about that where she's just, like, if you think you can fly, why would you go up to the top of the building? Why wouldn't you just take off from the street, right? But, but you know, there's those horror stories that undergird so much waste and horrible things in America through the drug war. But that's mirrored by people like Timothy Leary and, you know, the descendants of him who are like, man, you take this, you know, one dose of LSD, one trip, one this, one that, and like, you're cured. 
And it's like, no, it isn't like that. I mean, like, it's like working out. You can have one great workout and you're like, okay. And then you got to go back to the gym the next day. And that's true with all kinds of discovery. But, you know, individually, like growing as a person, sometimes you do, you have to look into the abyss and see what's looking back at you. Or maybe you even take the dive over and see what happens. I want to say, okay, I want to say two things. One, on the side of the bad experiences, I think there's a bit of an asymmetry there because while the likelihood of those terrible experiences have has been really exaggerated by the anti-drug forces the likelihood is not zero oh like yeah they, no they i'm not sa- the create like the the person that does acid and jumps off of something that really does happen vanishingly it's very, small and it's, it's, it's rare it's rare but it's not so rare that i don't know examples of it from my own extended network of, of like say kids i went to college with right i mean what happens i think a lot of the times when you look at those cases but that's something i think can be prevented by doing it in well, in, in, it a in a prepared social, setting yeah absolutely and, uh, and that doesn't mean even if a social setting is not maybe necessarily controlled enough to totally because your friends might be idiots. Yeah. No, right? totally. Especially if you're 18. I agree. So, there may be some, you know, it's something to think about with like, are you around truly responsible, at least one person that's truly responsible yeah. enough to I mean, prevent the tail end bad outcomes? Yeah. It's, you know, if you have a designated driver, you should have, you know, what's a trip sitter or something like that for sure. And you need to be, you need to take all of this serious, even if your idea is to have fun and thrill. So uh, one thing I will say is that, you know, when you read the stories, like, you know, the guy who founded Reason Magazine in 1968, apparently had a bunch of bad acid trips and kind of, and was schizophrenic. Like he ended up, uh, you know, dying in a Veterans Administration hospital. Yeah, that does happen sometimes. But his mental problems, it's, they can be exacerbated by psychedelics, but generally speaking, you know, it isn't the substance They can open a door that like, there's been a monster in your mind banging on a door and psychedelics can open it. And if you don't, if you're unlucky enough to not be able to kill the monster or somehow tame it, you could, yeah. I mean, these these bad things do happen. Uh, let's see, there's one other point I wanted to make. So I think that um, I see like lurking in what you're saying a little bit of this idea that difficult experiences can make you stronger, which is true. I think that is, I view the mechanism a little differently though, because I think it's like what it is, is that when happy, strong people have difficult experiences, they make them mean something in retrospect. And then they often tell themselves a story. Like I tell myself a story about how my mother dying when I was 18 was was a very important growth experience for me, right? Now, does that mean I would actually prescribe someone's mother dying as a growth experience? No, I think retroactively you make it, yeah, as you say, you, you, you rewrite the life history and don't notice the track changes. That's kind of how I view like truly bad trips. Truly bad trips, like the few I've had are just like actually synonymous with deep mental illness. It's like what can it I is ask, to be. I mean, can you put a little bit of detail on that? Sure. So I'll give you one example. The two times I've done acid, I had one fantastic trip and one terrible trip. And the terrible trip, I became convinced that one of my best friends in the world was trying to murder me like that night. So I became basically the like protagonist of a horror movie that I was creating fully out of whole cloth or out of like slightly bad vibes. And so I, I was visiting him at, at um, Princeton and I escaped him by taking the train back to New York at midnight. Like mentally, I, I felt I was escaping. I have to say, I mean, we're both from New Jersey. I The idea of tripping at Princeton kind of is a nightmare. Honestly, but, I mean, yeah. that, that may have had something to do with it, frankly. 
set, set and setting. But with the caveat that it's a priori very difficult for the uninitiated and maybe even the initiated to predict how set and setting will influence the trip. So in some way, it's a moot point. For, for many people. Yeah. And there's within the broad psychedelic movement, you know, people talk in a lot of different kind of vaguely woo woo terms or whatnot, but people say, you know, a lot of people call psychedelic drugs medicine and they'll say, well, you know, the medicine knows where you need, you know, what you need and maybe you need like a bad trip or you need this. And it's, that's a way of saying, you know, it yeah, can I be mean, unpredictable. I think that this yeah. is that all that, those kind of things are all kind of like bullshit platitudes that healthy people construct and they should i think you should actually reframe your past difficult experiences like that that's what happy people do it doesn't actually make it maybe not happy let's say well adjusted well adjusted that's exactly what i mean that's exactly what i mean in any event my bad trip it was what i have to imagine it's like to have 10 out of 10 paranoid schizophrenia for about 48 hours that sounds terrifying terrifying right so like i can come up with a story about how this was good for me I think that story is not true, and it's important to keep that in view so as to alert people to the real potential downsides of these things. Yeah, I agree. I I, I think that's a good story to tell. It's also to, you know, in the same way that you don't try to run a marathon, you know, like I've been running five miles a day for a week. Now I'm going to run a marathon, like, you know, kind of work up to it because you can't really go as you, you can't push yourself to the limits until you've kind of defined who you are. This is something I think is rarely discussed in the psychedelic community. I think so many of us, our first experiences were with the so-called heroic dose, right? The ultra high dose of these substances. That, that wouldn't be obvious as a prescription in any other scenario, right? Like you, you if yeah, you maybe were- Maybe with like antibiotics or something like that, like where you're going to take a high dose. Fair but enough. Yeah, your, your point is well taken. But with any other psychoactive drug. Yeah. And even like you don't start drinking. Yeah, if you're you don't getting start your drinking nephew drunk. Bacardi 151, exactly. you start with three, two You give your nephew something. one yeah. beer, right? And you work up to, because if they have a terrible reaction to two beers, well, then you know they don't need 10. And and I think that's a, I guess that norm probably started in the 60s, but I, th- I think that norm should be broken. I think people probably should start with smaller doses and work their way up to the heroic because but I do acknowledge the heroic dose it's not it's more than the sum of its parts like it can really do something it can break something that needs to be broken I, you in know you exactly or, the yeah. the kind of scenario you're, you're laying out for yourself and the way you've thought that through everybody needs to do that for themselves for sure I mean that's it's really illustrative and I'm getting a lot out of that it's um the the other thing uh to think about too is just like nobody has to do these substances, right, Uh, in order to have personal growth. Um, One of the reasons that things like MDMA substances like MDMA are being used in therapy is because they do, you know, uh, kind of open up your ability to revisit the past, particularly trauma in a way that is safe um, so that you can actually experience and process it, you know, in a more productive way. And so, I I mean, I you know, everything you're saying, I find interesting and I, I generally agree with. The other broad point is that, uh, and this is something I, I write a lot about generational change because, uh, you know, I, I'm, I, I was born in the second to last year of the baby boom. And I kind of hate the baby boom or I hate boomers The who are it's really the mindset of when we talk about boomers, we're talking about the first 10 years of the baby boom, roughly uh, from 46 to about 56. But 
You know, one of the reasons why psychedelics were appealing to boomers, I think, in the 60s is that the the rhetoric around them, and there's some truth to this, I think, you know, is that they dissolve structures of regimentation, oppression, or just ordering. So like, you know, if you grew up in a world where it's like you were expected to be very male or very female, and there wasn't a lot of gray, you know, it's all binary, um, where you had to look a certain way, there were only two or three social types. Yeah, you like know, the, like uh, everybody, you, you were the, like cookie cutters. Ron like, Swanson, Parks and Recreation. There are two acceptable haircuts, crew cut. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, and then it's like, so you want something that dissolves that and kind of gives you room to kind of experiment and try things out. That's a very different experience than I think people your age grow up with, where it's not, nobody's saying like, you have to do exactly this and you have to look this way, et cetera. It, if anything, it's, like you're, you have, you can do anything you want. You can be anything you want. Like a lot of the structures, both large and small and banal, like, you know, people don't learn how to, you know, do handwriting anymore. People don't learn table etiquette. Like the, the, the number of agreed upon rules of decorum have disappeared. And it's kind of interesting to me when I talk to younger people about their psychedelic experiences, they're kind of different than mine. Because for me, and again, I grew up lower middle class, my, I'm the grandson of immigrants. Catholic, like it was kind of an ordered universe. And so like acid is acid on, you know, all of these things. And it's like, holy cow, I can live differently than my parents and I can try, I can go to college. I mean, my father didn't even graduate high school, et cetera. Like, it's like, that's a different world than if you're growing up in a sandbox where it's like, if you can think it, you can do it. And younger people have, a, I think, a different experience on psychedelics, just as they do in many other parts of the world or of their lives. So speaking of sort of young people and their introduction to drugs, I had D.A.R.E., which I forget what the acronym stands yeah, it for. It stands for drugs are really expensive. Drug abuse. Resistance. Resistance maybe. education. Education, yep. yeah. So it's basically when a, a, you know, a cop comes to your fifth grade class. With a suitcase dressed full as a cop. of drugs, right? Or did you have that where they're like, I, they, I mean, that's one of the, the stereotypical things is like, you know, they have a suitcase full of drugs and then they open it up and show you what different drugs look like. I don't know if that's a, that may backfire. Oh, it definitely But, but basically, yeah, the, the cop comes to your classroom and just, tells you all of the negative side effects and consequences of drugs, most of which are, you know, either exaggerated or, um, yeah, or I, just I, made up. Exaggerated. I mean, made up. you know, one of the things about MDMA is that, you know, it's going to put, it's going to burn holes in, holes your, brain in your brain or, or your spinal cord. Yeah. First of all, I, I should just add, I don't know what MDMA does if you do it every other day. It's not, it, it I can't have be to good imagine for you. it's fucking you up and you should leave a lot of time between, um, yeah. um when you do it. So, yeah, but that kind of education, basically, they tell you all the downsides. You come away thinking, well, why would anyone even be tempted to do these, right? It's like you're describing it as if it's if it's like broccoli that also kills you. And the moment you realize that drugs can make you feel better than you've ever felt for short periods of time, and they didn't include that in the lesson, you begin to think, okay, what else are they lying about? And if you're any kind of smart, I think that kind of messaging I don't know how well that messaging works maybe it, maybe it works very well with certain people but just zooming out every parent that has done drugs I think wonders how they should speak if they should speak about drugs with their children right you have kids 
How do you think adults should talk to kids about drugs? Yeah, this is brutal. I used to write a lot about kind of early parenting uh, stuff at Reason, and we go through these cycles of what some people call hard parenting and soft parenting. And, you know, this is the difference between like Benjamin Spock, Dr. Spock and uh, Bruto Bettelheim, for instance, or, you know, it's the difference between free range parenting and kind of tiger mom parenting type stuff, constantly going back and forth. And with, you know, with kids, you realize you know, again, like you don't, you you know, when your kid's starting to read, you don't give them Tolstoy or something like that. I think with drugs, as kids get older, you need to talk honestly about them and first and foremost about drinking, you know, and I say that not only because of my family history and a kind of culture, broader culture cultural history that I'm part of, but because alcohol is vastly more ubiquitous. You can't choose to avoid it. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. and um, and I think part of the starting point is that, you know, certain things kids, you know, just aren't right for kids or, you know, it is kind of like you're in my house, you live by my rules, you know, and so like in this house we believe in science and that kids shouldn't drink before they're 18 or 21 or whatever or do drugs and it's difficult because as a parent there's a lot of noble lies that go into parents. And one of the things my parents uh, have been gone for, I don't know, like 25 years. And as I get older, uh, my kids are, are, are adults. They're in their 20s. But, um, you know, I wish I had recourse to them to tell them how much more I understand about why they acted the way they did towards me. Um, so, you know, parenting is a kind of, you know, the ultimate kind of project management, you know, hellscape. Because you are, you have to be honest with your kids on a certain level. And you also don't talk to them about certain things because the, if that would be worse. You don't want to know certain things about your parents, you know. But with drug education, I think what needs to be understood is that people, part of the human condition is wanting to change your mental state at any moment. And that can be to get high or to get fucked up, to escape, to be obliterated or to tweak your performance upwards or you're feeling anxious. How do you pull that down a little bit? And that we have this pharmacopoeia in front of us, legal and illegal, or the government says licit and illicit. And you got to start to say, look, you're going to be in a position where you're going to be making decisions. And these things exist. DARE is a great example of how not to do it, first and foremost, by outsourcing it to schools and then to law enforcement and then to a rhetoric that just was shown, actually, this is going back like almost 20 years, the federal government under George Bush, of all people, insisted that drug education programs in schools need to be science-based, like they need to have studies that show results. And as a result of that DARE, which was in more than half of all school districts, uh, it was taken off the uh, government-approved list because there was no good evidence that it had any effect on the use rates among kids. And there were some where it may have actually it helped increase it for women. Uh, for girls. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I don't think yeah. it had any effect in my but, time. It's you know, certainly had no positive effect. Yeah, we need, that I, I mean, tell. we need to be, you know, and I think as a society, it's weird because, you know, we're, we're very much in a kind of broad national funk and have been for like the better part of a decade, I'd say. But, you know, in many, many ways, we're just a much more adult and serious society than we used to be. And I think that's happening with drug because I know very few people, even in, you know, the drug legalization movement, and there's a version of that called the harm reduction movement, which is that the goal of public policy regarding drugs isn't to increase or decrease use rates necessarily, but it's to reduce the harms that come overall from prohibition or from drug use. Like, and how do you do that? And it turns out that absolute prohibition 
doesn't always work. And, you know, and it may be better to come up with ways to reduce the social harms through things like needle exchange programs or serious education about the benefits and the costs of drugs, that that actually has better results. And, you know, and I think we're we're having a better conversation about drugs than we've ever had. It's still ridiculous and woeful, but it's much, much better than it was certainly when I was a kid. Okay, let's talk. uh, You say we're in a societal funk and presumably part of that has to do with with that we've become a low trust society. And that's something you've paid, paid a lot of attention to. You had a long piece about it in Reason Magazine in 2019. When you say we have gone from a high trust to a low trust society, what do you mean? So one way of of thinking about this Gallup, you know, the polling organization since the early 70s has been measuring what they call trust and confidence in in societal institutions. So they ask people, do you have, you know, a lot of trust, some trust, little trust or no trust in things like organized religion, government, uh, you know, including like the White House uh, or the executive branch, the legislative branch, the judiciary, big business, small business. They ask across a wide variety of things. And what's happened since the 70s, uh, the combined average of that, and this is kind of you know, simplifying it, but it gets at the large point, you know, about half of people in America had high trust and confidence in institutions that these parts of our world were the people running them were trying to do the right things most of the time. It's now I was just checking before we talked, um, it's at an all time low, it's at like 23% or 22%, that average. So it's dropped from around 50% to less than half of that since the uh, 70s, you know, in, in the past 50 years, say. We don't trust the our you know our neighbors. We don't trust our government. We don't trust our businesses. We don't trust our schools. We don't trust our experts as much as we used to, and that has real ramifications in society. Like in general, you don't want to live in a low trust society because if you think everybody is ripping you off and your government is ripping you off, it predictably and there's political scientists and sociologists and economists have looked at this extensively. It leads to you know also sorts of bad outcomes. Like it's harder to do business, right? If you don't trust the people you're doing business with, it, it raises the transaction cost. Cause like, if I don't think you're going to pay on time, I'm going to make you pay more and pay up front, which means everything gets more expensive. Like credit goes out the window. We don't trust our government for a lot of reasons. You know, in this, it's interesting to note, you know, in the seventies, that was a moment where it became unavoidable that the government, the federal government and in different ways, state and local governments were just lying and bullshitting about stuff in ways big and small. And, uh, you know, to put a little bit of flesh on that, the government had been working to kind of manage the economy so that we would have a lot of growth and low unemployment. And then suddenly in the 70s, it became you know, impossible, like things that economic theory couldn't make sense of. We had high unemployment and, you know, very volatile growth, like where we'd have 5% growth one year and negative, you know, a recession the next year. Uh, Inflation went up even as unemployment went up. And these things were always seen as inversely related. Like on a most basic level, we, you know, the government wasn't doing what we had thought it could handle. We saw in foreign policy and things like Vietnam, we couldn't do what we said we were going to do. You saw, you know, absolute corruption and like secret governance in things like Richard Nixon and Watergate and, you know, secret tapes that came out where he was saying one thing to the public and something very different in private. In the, to bring it back to drugs, in the mid 70s, there was a series of uh, Senate and other hearings on 
how the CIA, the FBI, uh, and the NSA were surveilling people illegally in America. And one of the things that came out was you know, the uh, this thing called uh, Operation uh, MK Ultra, where the CIA at one point in the 50s bought the world supply of LSD because they were looking for mind control drugs. And they started testing it on, you know, on their agents, on unwitting people. They had this whole kind of archipelago of rogue scientists who were just dosing people with stuff. And they knew it didn't work, but they kept doing it. Like all of this stuff came out. And people are like, wow, like, why should I trust the government? You know, it can't do what it says it's going to do. And then it lies all the time. And that's proceeded apace. I mean, like, in, you know, in every decade since the 70s, we've had at least one major scandal in the government where it turns out the government is lying. You know, for me, one of the more recent ones, you know, and Trump, you know, Trump is a special case because he just lies. You know, everything he said, even if it was not advantageous, he would lie. He's, he's like a weird sociopath that way. But under Obama, you know, when when it when Edward Snowden, you know, revealed what was going on under Obama, who had said, oh, we're getting rid of torture, we're getting rid of spying, we're getting rid of this. And Obama's response was like, well, I welcome, a, a you know, a conversation about intelligence surveillance on Americans. And it's like, no, you don't. You were hiding it from people. So there's that, you know, Biden has his problems. George Bush, the way that the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were funded was off budget for a long time or in secret supplemental hearings, et cetera, lots of fakery. And this, what happens when people don't trust, you know, and I'm a libertarian. Uh, this is actually one of the biggest changes in my life. Uh, when I showed up at Reason, I started in 1993 in October. So like, you know, I turned 60, I got engaged and I'm celebrating 30 years at Reason Magazine. One of the biggest changes for me was it was just taken for granted. The way that you reduce the size, scope and spending of government is by convincing people that the government is ineffective at best and is dissembling and lying at worst. And that's happened. Like everybody agrees with that the libertarian critique of of government, but government is bigger than ever and people want it to do more and more than ever. And that's something I didn't understand, you know, 30 years ago. Um, because then to go back to this kind of the article that I wrote, which is called, uh, I think everyone agrees government is a hot mess. So why do we get more of it or why do we want more of it? And, you know, it turns out it's very reliable that in low trust societies, people ask the government to regulate more and more parts of the economy and more and more parts of social life because they know the government is corrupt, but they're terrified of just free flow, you know, fr what they consider free floating kind of chaos in every aspect of, of yeah, their so lives. So on that correlation, I, I was reading that and it occurred to me, could that, could that be understood differently in those, in the sense that is it just that low trust societies are the societies that have a ton of problems, partly because they're low trust and the societies that have a ton of pressing problems are the societies where people are like really urgently demanding solutions because like they, they have like runaway inflation whatever. and then then the government is like who you who one demands solutions from, I guess. And let me way. before I get to that, that's a really interesting challenge. Um, but it's also true that clients, it's not just the government, you know, people have less media overall in the media. You know, it's like newspapers. Nobody believes them anymore. Uh, and for, you know, sometimes for good reason, sometimes because people are becoming psychotic conspiracy theorists and whatnot. One thing to point out is that the declines in trust are almost everywhere in the world. So even the Nordic countries, Scandinavian countries, there's lower levels of trust than there were 50 years ago. It's, it's pretty much everywhere. So it can't be a cause unique to America. It's, yeah. it's got to be some kind of wider structural thing. 
Yeah. And this is, well, and to get to that question of like saying, okay, we need more, you know, it's societies that have more problems are calling for, you know, more urgent solutions. I would argue in the United States, broadly speaking, we have many fewer problems, like material resource problems than we had 50 years ago. And I think by any seriously objective measure like racism, sexism, homophobia, poverty, these are all lower than they were 50 years ago. And that part of what we're witnessing in America, and I think broadly defined kind of uh, advanced economies, is that we have mainstreamed, and I think this is a good thing, this is how I try to turn it around, like what we are witnessing is the rise to ubiquity of of a kind of true enforced individualism where, again, you know, I mentioned like growing up in a certain time and place and social milieu where it's like I wasn't supposed to have an existential crisis because like that's, you know, that's a luxury item. That's like a luxury belief. You know, my goal was to get through, you know, grammar school, high school, go to college if possible, and then get a job that would allow me to provide for my family and have some money left over on the weekends to enjoy myself. You know what? Like when you reach a certain level of affluence, that goes out the window where, you know, we're all on... Abraham Maslow did not actually use a pyramid to talk about, you know, the hierarchy of needs. But, you know, we're all on the top of Maslow's pyramid. You know, there aren't any, you know, there aren't any slaves anymore building the pyramids. We're all kind of on the top. We have enough food, enough education, enough spare time where we need to create meaning in our lives. We're working at mostly at symbolic levels and more and more people. And that's really hard. And we were, we have not been trained. We have not been educated. We have not been... Well, it's a brand new problem. I mean, it, I guess it's always been a problem for the elite and the really the upper degree. crust, the aristocracy, and who knows how, how well they've handled it, but it's never been a problem for the majority of people. Right. That- and literally the majority of people on the planet in, uh, I think it was 2016 or 17, the Brookings Institution, uh, you, using UN data for the first time, said in human history, a majority of people on the planet were at middle class or higher income levels. So like when you look at local purchasing power, et cetera, it was something like 55% of humans on the planet were middle class. You know, we've seen massive declines in extreme poverty and regular poverty, but also like what happens to middle class people, you know, like this, you, when you're working your way up the second or third generation in a wealthy family, that's where you start to see more artists and kind of philosophers. You know, it's like the first generation are working really hard so that their that, kids that become doctors or lawyers. It's, yeah. The meaning of life is obvious. It's yeah. to get out of poverty. Right, get, and get to from provide for your kids. Exactly. And then your kids, you know, the doctors and lawyers, like doctors and lawyers, on, you know, this is a ridiculous statement, I guess, on some level, but it's like they don't, they don't want their kids to be engineers and lawyers and doctors and accountants. They want their kids to be, you know, whoever they want to be, uh, et cetera. And I think societally, in an interesting way, that's where we are because, uh, you know, I, I put a lot of trust in the work of an economist and sociologist at AEI named Scott Winship. And he's very clearly shown, I think, and convincingly that when you look at after-tax income and after-transfers, which is the way you would do it, poverty in America, we actually did kind of win the war on poverty in terms of like nobody's starving, nobody's malnourished. We are doing extremely well. The middle class is doing well. And more of us, you know, more of us are going to college, more of us are living symbolic lives. And that 
you know, that is really hard. I struggle with it. And I mean, this is like I, I get to work at a magazine where I get to push words around on a computer. But everybody is dealing with that on some level. All of the old verities, you know, this is where I'm a libertarian, but I'm kind of a, a Marxist uh, in the sense of, you know, when Marx and Engels and the Communist Manifesto talked about how the great achievement, you know, and this in the very early pages, the great achievement of kind of industrialized society, bourgeois society is, you know, that it everything solid dissolves into air. And so like all of these fixed truths and social orders and hierarchies get thrown into jeopardy. So suddenly, you know, people like me, people like you, people like everybody is moving up and down much more than they had. And that means like you got to figure, you got to rationalize who you are, who you want to be, what your identity is. I would add, you know, when you were saying like it used to be only the upper crust or, you know, aristocrats and stuff, part of their, you know, crisis is that they no longer are secure in that or suddenly people are showing up in, in their space asserting themselves in a way that they never imagined and that you know that pisses them off that's where a lot of decline narratives come from in the in the media you know, it's you, you don't you don't hear anybody at reason talking about how shitty it is to work in media compared to 50 years ago, because 50 years ago, we were a small think magazine that didn't have as much influence or circulation. For us, it's all been good. But if you're at The New York Times, you're like, huh, people don't take us as seriously or we're not the only voice that can open and close Broadway plays or movies or, or remove politicians. Kind of sucks to be them. And right? it's all relative, right? Scott Winship in your, I think you quote Scott Winship making a really fantastic point. People that say, you know, millennials are the first generation not to enjoy their parents. Yeah, that are going to have a lower standard of living than their parents. Yeah, that they that often the people the people who say that are people that had upper middle class parents. Yeah. So if you're starting at close to the very top, yeah. you're going to have a higher proportion of people that don't attain close to the very top and instead get one decile yeah. right like at the 80th percentile rather than the 90th percentile and they perceive their life in relative terms they didn't do as well as their parents and they're they're the yeah, people Elon that Musk's end up kids are not gonna you know yeah, here's a not, news flash i don't know how to pronounce most of yeah, his they're kids not, names they're, they're gonna backslide relative yeah, to their they're gonna be poor relative to him and and even the lesser case of someone i mean someone that their parent makes half a million dollars a year at a big nice law firm their kids might not all make half a million dollars a year. They're going to live likely. fantastic lives and they're going to be free from They're going to basically yeah. want for nothing in the grand scheme of things. Gene Twenge, who you had on recently, who, you know, a decade or more ago, I think in The Atlantic, you know, wrote a story about how like millennials are falling behind, like they're in various ways. And she, her new book, Generations, I have my differences with her. I interviewed her after hearing her on your show and I like the book, Generations. And Me too, everything, I think but it's her best. Yeah. She also, you know, recently wrote an Atlantic story saying, oh, you know what? Millennials have caught up. So it's like they're not going to have lower standards of living. Winship at one point um, uses uh, data, again, after tax and transfers, that 70 percent of Americans at age 30 are doing better than their parents were at the same age adjusted for inflation. And that figure has stuck for around 50 years. It used to be like 90 percent, because if you were if you were 30 in 1960, um, you were definitely doing better than your parents because your parents were like living during the Depression, you know. And so like things start to like as as everybody gets wealthier, it's harder to get to, to the get top one percent. Yeah. But in real terms, you're you're do, you're living a vastly different life. 
Okay, so the one I, I thought caveat that came to my mind when I read this sort of optimistic narrative about economic progress is the price of college tuition just absolutely eclipsing the, yeah, the whatever way general rate of inflation, et cetera. A couple things about that. Uh, one is there's still a massive pre- wage premium to going to college. And, you know, people, you can split this all kinds of ways. And, you know, I'm, I, I mean, I have a doctorate. I, you know, and I'm an English major all the way down. So like I'm one of the problems, right? Like I, I got a bullshit degree that wouldn't amount to anything. But on average, like going to college really, increases your lifetime earnings by somewhere between after counting for the cost of it, like between 250,000 to a million dollars or whatever. And obviously, cool, which will then get in the future eaten away if you try to send your kids to college. Yeah, maybe. Right? But here's the other thing is that tuition, what's interesting is tuition has actually been relatively flat for about the past decade or so. It's the other stuff. So it's room and board and things like that. I think there and, and more people are going to college, like basically for the past 20 20 years, it's been right around two thirds of graduates of high school graduates immediately go on to some kind of college, which suggests to me not that it's not getting more expensive, but that it is still affordable because if it was actually getting out of the reach of people, so it might just be in the same way, you know, we pay more for TV than we did in the seventies when it was free, but it's something we're willing to pay for. I think, you know, it's not say everything is great and there are no problems or anything like that, but college is still radically affordable. It's also what we're going through. Isn't isn't that distorted by the fact that so many people are getting loans that are then guaranteed and and don't have to be collected on because they can be yeah, I mean, there's problems the with there are well, the, the government issues virtually all student loans. Uh, you know, there is a private market for it, but this was something uh, that was changed a couple of decades ago, uh, and it was done in the name of efficiency. It would reduce costs, et cetera, and it. it didn't work out. Like, you know, there's always unintended consequences. But, you know, the student loan crisis, I think, has been misunderstood in the sense when you look at the average person who goes to college, and again, this isn't perfect, but they graduate like about, depending on the year, somewhere between 60 and 70% of students borrow something for college. You know, most of them, the median is like around $30,000. And, you know, when you look at the rates that they're paying, and there's a lot of ways to forestall that until you have more income, et cetera. It's basically like a car payment. And you could argue it would be better that kids, you know, or graduates are paying, get out of college debt free and then are buying a car on top of rent, et cetera. But it's not the backbreaking thing. Like these numbers get inflated by whenever if, you know, when people talk about $1.7 trillion in student loan debt, that always includes people who are going to medical school and law school and MBAs, et cetera. And it's like, that's just not right. When you look at the traditional undergraduate degree and, you know, I know you went to uh, Columbia. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you also did time at Juilliard, right? So like these are among the most expensive universities on the planet. There are other ways to go to college. And most of the benefit of a college degree accrues by going to college, not by going to Columbia or Juilliard. It's true. And this is actually something that's really interesting in the student loan data. African-Americans tend to borrow more to go to college 
and they go to more expensive schools on average. And there's there's an argument where looking at different subpopulations, where if you're going to do targeted relief, there's ways to do that. But broadly speaking, like it's you can go to college in an affordable way where you learn or you, you get the benefits of a college education and it, it can scale to almost any budget. Uh, and again, the proof of that really is that we continue to churn out college graduates, you know, like if if it was fully unaffordable, wouldn't fewer people go to college if it were truly free market in lending rather than a market that was distorted by the fact that these um, the half private, half public bodies buy up all All, the loans. All colleges on a profound level are are public universities now because they get so much money either in terms of government grants for research or loans. So would you agree fewer people would go to college in that context and and that somewhat undermine your argument that like the fact people are still going is... The proof is in the pudding. Right? Yeah, well, I'm saying um, it's, you know, the, the higher education market. And this is also, you know, I'm a bad libertarian because I, you know, in that article about trust and confidence, I say, you know, libertarians, we are we, we have helped create a low trust society that then calls for more government. We need to kind of figure something out here. Um, I'm also a bad uh, libertarian in the sense that I, you know, higher education, something like 80 or 85 percent of students go to public universities. And I all of my degrees are from public universities, I don't get hot and bothered about like, oh, you know, that, you know, I went to Rutgers in New Jersey and it's like they get like about 17 percent of their operating budget or something from the state legislature. Not a not a lot, but like, yeah, maybe all colleges should be private. It would mean that the schools would generally be more expensive and fewer people would go. I think there's broad benefits to having lots of different colleges. There's like 4,400 four year colleges and universities, the vast majority of which are public or publicly assisted, the vast majority of which suck. I mean, like only about 400 schools have any real entrance requirements or admission requirements. But I don't, you know, this is not like an area where I'm like, oh, you know, we need to destroy publicly funded higher education. To your larger point, Every, the price, it would be more expensive. There would be fewer schools if the state was not involved in higher ed. It's also probable that the tuitions would be lower because, and this is a lot of research shows that every time the government says, okay, we're going to make more money available in the form of student loans or Pell Grants or whatever to, to universities, universities raise their tuition because they people can absorb the cost. Okay. So on some level, If I were to think from first principles and sort of definitions, when I define trust, I think trust is is the fact that I don't need to double check something, right? It's like I don't need to double check that someone has done the work that I asked them to do and isn't lying to me. I don't need to uh, check their math. I know if if I trust my accountant and I know them to, I know they're going to make the, they're not going to pocket some on the edge, I don't have to check. And the fact that I don't have to check is... It lowers the transaction cost of just everything. That's why it's great well, to be you in know, business. Another way of talking about too right? is like reputation where, you know, because the minute you said that, I realized oh, I am the problem because I was like, yeah, but Reagan, you know, said about nuclear weapons. Trust but verify. Trust but verify. So, I mean, this is one of the great um, bullshit politician 
kind of phrases because it's brilliant. This is what politicians do is they don't acknowledge that there are any trade-offs in the world and they say, I'm going to give you everything, right? And, and people, idiots fall for it. Trust but verify makes no sense. The hallmark of trust is that you don't have to verify. That's the whole reason that it is so useful and so productive. Right. And, well, and it, and it also gets encoded in things like reputation or, you know, and we were talking about drugs like uh, this is, I, I think my caffeine may either be kicking in or wearing off, but it's like you do a little bit of something. And then like when you build up a little bit of trust or confidence in what it is, then you, you do a bigger dose or with, with, a, with a merchant or somebody, you know, you, you do a small deal with them. And then like, if that works out, then you do a bigger deal, et cetera. And part of this gets pulled into, you know, the broad term reputation. And so online merchants, and this is also something I'm old enough to remember the emergence of online retail where, you know, it didn't exist. There was catalog, there was, you could buy stuff by the mail. And that was also weird where it's like, you know, you would send a, an order to somebody with a check and like, you kind of didn't know if you were going to get anything back. So it's you wouldn't buy a house that way, but you might start with like some t-shirts or something like that. Similar to bring it back to this question of trust and confidence, Amazon, you know, which dominates online retail, which is still under like 20% of all retail in America. But Amazon, they have one of when Gallup and other places look at, okay, what do you think about these different things? You know, and it can be Congress is always in like the single digits, but like Amazon, it's like 85% of people have a lot of trust and confidence in Amazon because over time, they like never miss. Yeah, they show up, you know, and, and when they do like, they're like, they oh, make it here you go. Or like, and you know, now you can bring, they don't make it hard to make you whole. They, you know, yeah. And it's like, you could bring back, you know, you can drag anything you bought on Amazon in like in your hands and throw it at a Whole Foods and they'll, you know, give you a refund and stuff. So you build up that reputation over time, but, and it does mean like every once in a while, like probably you, you do want to check the math on your accountant, not because you think they're cheating you, but also because people make mistakes and you want to also know, I mean, this is, you know, insurance agents, we don't really talk about them anymore, but they were famous for, you know, maybe like every year, like this is public service announcement. Like if you have auto insurance every year, do a quick check out of progressive insurance or something where they'll give you a bunch of different quotes to see if your insurance company isn't kind of like bumping you up without telling you because that happens. So, but you get, you know, reputation matters in a trust society. Yeah. And so my point is like, if, if that's what trust is, then as journalists, why should we trust the government? Like, shouldn't we distrust? Shouldn't the rational position be to distrust? Uh, yeah, but until like people start, you know, if they start delivering on certain promises that they made. Or for me, I I'm not an anarchist. I'm you know a small L libertarian, and I think I'm, I'm you know what sometimes gets called a classical liberal coming out of the 19th century. I think government exists to do certain things that are easier to do or can rightfully be done at the societal level or collective level. But it should be much smaller than it is. You know, prior to in 2019, the federal budget was something like 4.4, 4.8 trillion dollars. It's now consistently over six trillion dollars, and it's probably never going to look back. I don't know what we're getting for that extra 50 percent that we've been, you know, that we're spending from four years ago. Uh, under Bush, George W. Bush, the federal budget went from about two trillion dollars to over four trillion dollars, or around four trillion in a relative, you know, in an eight-year period. He increased overall spending by about 50%. And, you know, it wasn't, that's a bender. It was all 
debt finance too. That's another problem that has effects on economic growth. But it's like, I wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal. This is like a career highlight. Uh, I got to write the anti-Bush editorial for the Wall Street Journal the day after Karl Rove wrote, like, Bush was the greatest president ever, even though he went out with like 20% approval ratings. And I was like, you know, like, we went on this bender where we're spending twice as much or not, yeah, well, 50% more money. And what do we have to show for it? Like, we don't have like a bunch of cars that parked in the yard or anything like that. And that uh, kind of a digression, but there are times when you can trust politicians, I think, or trust governments. Like you, you need to be able to trust the government that the police are not there to control you. They are to protect you, things like that. That school education, you know, that the money is being spent on education and not on bullshit, including, you know, paying the, the pensions of teachers who retired 25 years ago or to build new buildings, big new buildings for fewer and fewer students, things like that. So in your piece, you, you mentioned that actually there are certain segments of society that retain pretty high trust. And those segments are the military, the police. Yeah. And I think you also mentioned like local media, local newspapers, as opposed to, or, or was it local government? It's a local government people have more trust and confidence in than, than state or, or federal. I was going to say foreign government. I, I don't know. But although I have to say, like, I live for a variety of reasons for a good, like 20 years of my life in a small college town in Ohio, either full-time or part-time. And it was a small town that was run by relatively few people. And I came to really dislike the local government because, you know, they would show up when I was shopping for groceries and things like that. And they were terrible. But yeah. And it's also true that certain charities do well, things like Amazon do well. But the large point about the trust and confidence stuff and the way it plays out in reputation is that there are times when there are reversals. A, a company like Volkswagen, I think I bring this up in uh, that article, but Volkswagen had a really strong reputation for being honest and fair. And, you know, the cars sold at a premium, but they were really good cars and they would take care of them if they were fucked up. And then some years ago, you know, the, it turned out they were goosing the results of like how clean burning their diesel engines were. And, you know, and it, it turned out like they, they you know, they, they were just lying to people and they got caught and that hurts Volkswagen's reputation and they need to do something to build it back up. The United Way, a major uh, philanthropy, had a big scandal in the early part of the 21st century. The Catholic Church had a massive scandal about sexual abuse among priests, and they haven't really addressed it, either within the United States or, you know, at the at the global level. And that it's within institutions' power to turn things around if they want to. Government, and I point this out in the 90s, there are moments where trust and confidence in like the federal government or state government or whatever go up. And in the 90s, as you know, there was a good economy, which helps everything. But also there was and there were a bunch of major pieces of legislation passed that were kind of effective, uh, you know, things like NAFTA, things like um, welfare reform. And you know what? You, you saw bumps in people saying like, OK, yeah, I, I have more trust and confidence in the government that it's trying to do the right thing. OK, let's talk about libertarianism. You mentioned that you're now like 30 years at Reason. Uh, coming up. Yeah, uh, it's amazing. And, uh, you know, flat, the flagship libertarian magazine. And you are in many ways the lead spokesman for libertarianism. I don't I would love to believe that. I don't think so. And especially because, uh, you know, 
If I'm the lead spokesman, we we got a lot of work to do. So, what has been the most surprising development in libertarianism? from your viewpoint, say, 30 years ago? So a couple of things. One, like on a personal level, that insight that I really believed, and I think most libertarians still believe, like the way you, you know, libertarians believe in, you know, kind of maximizing individual freedom and liberty and autonomy and minimizing coercion, mostly through state government at at various levels. And um, I really, really thought it was obvious, like the way that you shrink the size open spending of government is by showing that it, it it either can't work that well or it doesn't need to or that it's corrupt and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, we won that argument. And that ultimately leads to more government, like government at every level is spending more and doing more, et cetera. So that's a big reversal. One of the things that I'm actually really happy about, and I'm just thinking about the past 30 years, is how so many broadly libertarian issues or themes or mentality have really seeped into, I think, the common culture, you know, and everything's always a battle and like no victory is is complete. I mentioned NAFTA. At the end of the 90s, there was a really big battle among, um, you know, activists, intellectuals, governments, businesses about um, free trade and the idea that like if you create more free trade, it's a win-win situation. And that one, and that one partly, you know, because the NAFTA agreement, North American Free Trade Agreement, which was started under George H.W. Bush, but then it was completed under the Clinton-Gore administration. And, you know, Al Gore famously, or, you know, in its day, it was famous, he went on Larry King. And I realize now I'm like talking about like burlesque or vaudeville in the early 20th century or something, but like he went on the Larry King show on CNN, which still exists, but in a much smaller version. Larry King is dead. Al Gore, I think, is mostly missing, you know, in action. But and he debated H. Ross Perot, who was the reason why Bill Clinton got elected, because he pulled a lot of votes from George H.W. Bush. He had like 19 percent, the best third party showing in, you know, 100 years. And he debated him on NAFTA and on free trade. And free trade won. Now people are revisiting that. I think it's mistaken. But so no victory is perfect. But when I look at things like the drug war, you know, many, many more people. People are now saying, you know what, we need to give people more freedom. The drug war isn't working. It's not reducing drug use and it causes all kinds of black market problems, it causes all kinds of issues. You know, we're, we're in the midst of the beginning of the end of the drug war. That's fantastic. I think people are more anti-war uh, than they were certainly in 2000. And I think that's a good thing. I'm not an isolationist, but I am a, generally a non-interventionist. And I think that's kind of fantastic. I think people understand that the government doesn't need to kind of be in charge of everything and fewer and fewer things that you can have things like internet commerce and you don't need the government to sign off on everything. Uh, The internet radically altered the ways that people understood they could voluntarily relate to one another and things like that. On big issues like school choice, you know, like people recognize that you know, it's probably better to give parents more choices rather than fewer choices. And that, you know, kind of the old model of having, you know, centrally controlled, even locally, but centrally controlled schools. Yeah, it's probably better to like, you know, just let more schools experiment and, you know, help fund them to do that. Um, I think more broadly on a cultural level, 
And to me, this is what matters most. I'm a big believer in what I call like lived liberty. It is so much easier to just be who you are now, you know, for all of the, you know, the rancid conversations about gay and straight and trans and, you know, black and white and BIPOC and everything. It's just much easier to be the person that you are and to experiment with that. Like sometimes I talk about how people like David Bowie and Madonna and Prince were these kind of avatars of like, okay, what would happen if you could just explore who you want to be for a period of time without giving a shit? And not only are you free to do that, like you've thrown off internal shackles. So like, yeah, I'm going to dance like that. I'm going to dress like this. I'm going to have sex like this or eat what I want or whatever. But also society is like, yeah, you know what? Like, yeah, we, we should give people more space. Uh, you know, to me, these are like kind of broad libertarian themes that I think have you know, really kind of bled into the the common culture. And it doesn't solve everything. But in general, I think it's easier to live the way you want to now than it was certainly 50 years ago. I think about personal freedom. And I just had Eric Kaufman on, we were talking about this subject, like, which aspects of freedom lead to happiness and which aspects don't. So this notion that having a fluid identity that is like, sort of constantly changing and searching I think it, it may turn out that that's really not a, a particularly good path to happiness because it's, it's inherently unstable and searching and kind of potentially hedonistic in a way that doesn't tend to work out. But I don't think that's what most people do. I understand where you're coming from. And if I may, there's a great anthropologist, academic anthropologist who mostly works as a brand consultant now and a business uh, guy named Grant McCracken. And he wrote a book in the 90s, which was very influential to my thinking and to kind of the reason I can only speak for myself, but he wrote a book called Plenitude. And he pointed out that people don't escape a kind of social hierarchy or a tradition in order to have no tradition. It's they're kind of they ha they're exercising a right of exit to find the one that fits them better or to define it and and create it. And I'm thinking also of, you know, and he his most recent book is called The Return of the Artisan. And it's about how like good cooks and chefs didn't leave like giant kitchens in order to just cook whatever, like they create their own places. There's a rise in artisanal everything, which is kind of incredible and great. And it's so like it, the model is kind of religion, like people don't leave religion, religious people don't leave the established church. They don't leave the Church of England in order to become atheists. Usually they do it so they can worship God in the way that they see as more real and more authentic. And so you're, the question isn't like, are you going to live by a code of ethics or, or, or an identity? But it's like, do you have the freedom to choose or does it get pushed on you? And then you're not allowed to leave. And this is where I think a lot of people who worry about kind of cultural chaos are wrong. And I take your point on an individual level. If you are just seeking you know, like the next thing and you don't have a core identity or you're not kind of trying like to figure out where you, you go. You wear like the same thing every time I've ever seen you. Like the, you, you are such actually a stable character. You are known as Nicholas B. He's wearing a leather jacket. He's dressed in all black. He's a libertarian. You actually have a very fixed identity, but it's one that you've chosen. Right. 
When I started, if I may, uh, you know, I I had gone through a goth phase, I guess, in the uh, like 80s a bit. But, you know, and, uh, you know, so like I wasn't uncomfortable wearing black, but I really started black uh, wearing black. I was picked to succeed my predecessor at Reason. Um, I took over the magazine in 2000. And part of it was like, OK, I'm going to be the editor of, a, you know, of a public a, a thought magazine, you know, a politics and culture magazine like National Review or The Nation or Harper's or The Atlantic. And I was like, OK, well, I, you know, I need to be a good figure or spokesman. And I talked with my then wife and who, you know, the mother of my children were on very good terms. And we like kind of were like, OK, well, why don't we let's think about this? And it's like I knew like, uh, OK, so like I'm a you know middle class white guy. Uh, I'm not going to dress super sharp. Like, I'm not going to spend $5,000 on suits. I don't want to look like I'm just like a bad Catholic schoolboy with ill-fitting coats and a clip-on tie. And I was like, okay, this this kind of look, I was like, this is memorable. It reflects who I am. And it also removes, uh, the, and this is where I, you know, to go to a deeper point, I think that you were implying, it's like, if I don't have to worry about what I'm wearing every day, then I have more time to kind of think new thoughts or to explore new ideas or to engage more new people. And that for me is what's important because I don't, you know, in a way, you know, the kind of container of like what you look like that. And I, and again, you know, people like David Bowie and Prince and Madonna are all great examples of like they changed the way they looked a lot. But for me, it's like it's very liberating to have a uniform because then it gives me more time to actually I'm more interested in ideas. I'm more interested in experiences. And I think all of us, I mean, to go back to, I, I think, something we were talking about earlier, we need to we I mean, it would be great if we thought more openly about this, like, you know, if, if the process of education wasn't like, how do you get a good job and, you know, this or that or how do you sit still? But it's kind of how do you develop the tools to kind of figure out who you want to be? I mean, it's, it's I it's like I am like. You know, I'm a generation removed from Hell's Kitchen when it was an Irish ghetto. Um, you know, my father grew up in Hell's Kitchen. And it's like I get to fucking talk and think and work for a living, you know, like whatever. And it's like we need to help more and more people are in that kind of situation. We need to equip our society where people know this is, you know, this is something that's worth thinking about and doing and working on because we all need to build out our own traditions and our own sense of the past, et cetera. And just I'm blathering, I realize, but to throw in a little bit more, there's another great libertarian-ish thinker named Kevin Kelly, who was an early, uh, uh, editor at Wired and he's still cooking. And he's a simultaneously, he believes in the need for tradition and ritual and everything. But he says, and I think this is totally true, a lot of the stuff that we inherited from our parents, like it's just played out. Like it's, it doesn't make sense in our world. And that doesn't mean you don't have tradition or ritual or community, but like you got to you got to build it. You got to reinvent it. And then you also have to recognize when like, OK, this isn't working anymore. It's time to start building a new, you know, a new settlement on the frontier. OK, on that note, I think uh, we've been going for almost two hours. Gillespie, thanks so much for coming on my show. 
Uh, thank you, Coleman. Do you have it's, anything I, to promote other than the documentary? Uh, yeah, you know, Reason in New York, we we do, uh, you know, a couple events a month, and um, people can check that out at reason.com slash events. I also, you know, and uh, this is not simply to uh, kind of tongue bathe you in praise, but like you are one of the people that I, you know, I moved back to New York. I was born in Brooklyn, grew up mostly in New Jersey, and then I like wandered the the country, literally in a prison town in Texas, a small town in Ohio, L.A., Philadelphia, Buffalo, uh, and, you know, and everywhere in between. I moved back to New York in 2018 because I was like, you know, New York is the place to be, the density of just people and opportunities and shit that's going on. And like people like you, because uh, how old are you? 27. Yeah, it's like it's I, I've been really impressed and enlivened by, you know, your emergence. I met you very soon after coming here. And it's like you are the type of individual who is conscious of all of the different kind of tributaries that are that are make you yourself. But you remain an individual. And this is I think we need more individualism in America or in conversation and not you know, like, oh, I'm a self-made man and I'm an island or something like that. But that people who are willing to challenge, you know, the received categories, but then also focus on like, how do I make my life kind of a work of art or how do I keep improving? How do I keep iterating towards whatever is going to emerge as the the authentic me? And I, you know, so I think you've been doing that in a remarkable way. Oh, and I just you, <laughs> don't stop. I mean, like, because this is the other thing. I, you know, we, I think before we got on, we were talking about this a little bit. In today's world, you can have the opportunity of building an audience for yourself and building a life and an identity and everything. But the really hard part is to build in critical feedback so that you don't just become the worst version of yourself or the cartoon version of what you start out to be. I don't know that I've done that, but I, you know, you like you are, you know, you're, you're helping to show, you know, what is possible and things like that. So I really appreciate your work and your presence and your friendship, if I may Thank say. Thank you. Yeah. Likewise. I feel the same way about you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you enjoyed it, be sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to my podcast to stay up to date on all my latest content. If you really want to support me, consider becoming a member of Coleman Unfiltered for exclusive access to subscriber-only content. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.